0: Good evening everyone and a hush of anticipation fills the crowd. Welcome to the National Library of Australia. It's wonderful to see a full house here tonight Um, in July in the middle of winter in Canberra. Not everyone's hibernating at home. I'm Cathy Pilgrim and as we begin I would like to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet. I pay my respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and the Ngambri people, past and present, and thank them for sustaining this land we are privileged to call our home. Welcome again. I'm delighted that we do have so many of you here tonight to listen to Matthew Evans speak about his book, On Eating Meat. Matthew is the presenter of the Gourmet Farmer series on SBS, which is in its sixth season, including a spin-off series, Gourmet Farmer Afloat. He is also the presenter of two documentaries, What's the Catch?, an eye-opening documentary into the truth behind Australia's seafood industry, and For the Love of Meat, focusing on Australia's meat industry. The National Library is delighted to be able to provide a space for topical conversations like this one tonight, and we're very happy to work alongside Matthew, who manages to convey the complexity of this meaty issue, pardon the pun, (laughs) with empathy, wisdom and objectivity. Tonight Matthew is joined by Karen Hardy. Karen is the Canberra Times Good Food Editor and has been contemplating the ethics of eating meat since her daughter chose a vegetarian diet two years ago. So please join me in welcoming Matthew and Karen this evening.
1: it's always lovely to catch up with Matthew over the the course of a few years we've managed a a few interviews usually on the phone usually (laughs) on the phone so it's finally nice to meet face to face Um, Matthew has a a great connection with Canberra many of you might know um, going back to the restaurant days
2: yeah well I grew up here I, I lived here from the age of five to 25 something like that yeah
1: and then and then the restaurant you had in
2: City, was yeah, the yeah. I didn't own no. it, I was the head chef at a restaurant there. called The Republic. Republic. I don't know if that anyone's old enough yep. to remember that one. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah.
1: well, I suppose we, we were talking out the back before how you might approach a restaurant kitchen. Um, oh, you're going in, a in with that question, yeah. We'll go in with that question um, <laughs> in a different way after doing all this research. Do you think,
2: yeah? Oh, um, yeah. Th- I should have thought more about that. I thought I'd have the whole interview to think about that one. Um, Karen just threw that question at me just before we came in and said, "Oh, that would be a good one to ask." Uh, but I thought we'd get to that in the end. Um, <laughs> I, ha- I have thought about what I would uh, be like as a restaurant critic, having written this book, and I think I would be um, judging restaurants on on different criteria, on most the same criteria, but more criteria, having written this book. As a chef, I would be, I would be. Um, uh, much more dogmatic with my suppliers about what, where, how, why, um, the stuff I was getting, um, what it was fed, where it, where it lived, how it lived, um, uh, where it's from, how it died. So yes, I'd be very very dogmatic. And I'd also be more dogmatic, uh, I have to say, about all the vegetables and um, grains and, um, and nuts that, that, we, that we would use because I think... This book is an extension of my philosophy around being a little bit more aware of what you eat generally.
1: And and I think that's kind of what came through. It's about whether you choose to eat meat or not eat meat or you're somewhere in between. It's about making that conscious decision and, and kind of thinking more about where your food comes from.
2: Yeah. Uh, the, well, the, I think the book... Um, I try not to do in the book, I, I have no interest in converting anyone to, to eat meat. If you don't eat meat, uh, you know, if you're vegan and don't want to um, eat any animal products, that's fine, that's a valid choice. If you're vegetarian, so you eat some animal products, that's fine, that's your choice. And if you, but I also want omnivores to feel that they, um, it is possible to eat meat um, uh, for, for various ethical reasons and I lay out the arguments for that, I guess, at length in, in the book. Um, and so I'm not trying to demonise or take anyone from what their position of what they, they choose. I think they're all valid personal choices, they're up to you, I don't, don't care what, what, you know, really how you make those, what, what those choices are, but I want to help you make better choices within that perhaps, and, um, and, and make you feel better about the choices that you, you have open to you and that you can make.
1: Do you, do you think there's enough information out there for people to make those choices?
2: Ah uh, yes, no. I think no, no, no. <laughs> I don't think there's enough information. That's partly because it's our own fault. Because like one like percent of the population grows food for the other 99 percent. So we've all very separated from food production. And so, if you go back 5,000 years, most most humans were farmers. 5,000 years before that, pretty much all of us were hunter gatherers. So, so we were we've been very separated from the um, the what. The, the impacts of our actions on the animals and the land around us only for a very short period of time, yep. um, really. And, and it's only the last few, couple of hundred years that most people are separated from, from uh, the, yeah, the impacts of what, what they do in terms of growing food and housing themselves and clothing themselves and all the other things that we do. Um, it's only recently that we've been separated from that. And I think what's happened is the, the, the 1%, the farmers, who grow the food, have gradually said, you know, as, as people have become more urbanised and don't grow their own food, they've said, oh, we'll look after it. And then eventually it's, you know, some of the people in town are going, oh, hang on, you do what? And the, and the, the people growing the food going, oh, look, don't, don't worry, we'll look after it, we'll do it for you. And that's now got to the point where you've got a very shouty end of the spectrum, um, uh, at, well, both ends, a bit, you know, uh, uh, it's very polarised, so you've got a shout, the shouty end of, uh, you know, don't eat, any meat, all meat is murder. We should love all animals the same, and, a, and an industry cloaked in secrecy that has that has a lot to hide, which yep. is why it's cloaked in secrecy.
1: I suppose um, in the book you kind of outlined some of the the places that you went to. Was there anything that kind of gave you hope that you know we're beyond factory farming and?
2: Yeah. Uh, look, uh, I guess. I grapple with the issues of trying to feed the world. You know, like can we produce enough food? What the right kind of food, um, and and the right people getting the right kind of food? Because we can. It's very easy for us to stand here, sit here, and talk about meat. But, but you know, I think it's two hundred million people are you know uh, uh, have a vitamin A deficient, of which you know, there's the first, the best twenty options aren't vegan. Um, they're mostly uh, meat. You know, so it's so very easy for us to talk about these things, which then it's very different for different parts of the world, but. Um, uh, you know, I guess I'm, I'm interested in how we feed ourselves, what humanity can do better, what are impacts on the animals, what are the impacts on our societies and our community and, and, and um, uh, our culture.
1: Yep. We were we were talking at the back about, I suppose it's that disconnect that's kind of happened between the plate and and the production, and how we can kind of educate. You know, in, in my case, um, you know, my daughter watched a Paul McCartney video <laughs> and decided she'd never eat meet again but how can we educate kids that some people are getting it right
2: yeah I mean we used to think of it as food didn't we didn't sort of have this this lines of what you know where it was it was it was food Food, it 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 nourished us and we were all involved in the process of of getting it and um, we could see the impacts of of what we did uh, on everything around us Um, and now yeah it looks pretty grim when you look at a uh, especially if you look at you know, slaughter—the actual moment when an animal, animal dies—it looks really awful and it's fairly grim. But I can guarantee you, it doesn't matter what you eat. Farmers are—you uh, are, know—shooting po- you know, possums for, uh, you know, to grow it's apples. They're trappers. shooting ducks to <laughs> grow strawberries. Um, they're shooting uh, cockatoos to grow pistachios. Um, you know, pretty much there's very. <laughs> We compete with animals. We grow crops that, that are really nutritious and things want to eat them, and, and we compete with those animals for food. And so when they get in the way, we tend to kill them. We do that, farmers do that on your behalf every single day of the year. It doesn't matter whether you eat meat or not. And it's how we look at those lives, value those lives, and, uh, and whether we just go, well, that's the cost of agriculture, but do we add an extra life to that by then rearing an animal for, for the table as well?
1: Yep. But Is it about, I suppose, educating people to that? you do have to pay for quality meat?
2: Yeah, um, yes. Well, look, there's a, there's, a, there's a cost. There's always a cost. And um, so, to, to put just to put it in context, we've never spent less... Uh, we eat more meat than we ever have. Australians eat the most meat of any nation on earth. We trade places with the US every couple of years, but it's only by a kilo or two. We had 110 kilos per person per year, right? It's a lot of meat, a lot of meat, right? And I don't eat that much, and I know a lot of people who don't eat any and don't eat much. So if they're, um, if, if they're not eating much, someone's eating an awful They'll lot of meat. Me, yep. So we're eating a lot of meat. <laughs> we're eating a lot of meat. It's nearly three times as much as they eat in Europe, that hotbed of veganism, you know, like not. Um, you know, uh, they're not known for, their, you know, for abstaining from, yep. from animal products. Uh, so, so we eat way more than we probably need to. We actually spend less as a proportion of our income than we we have um, ever have uh, on meat. And when you don't pay the true cost, um, uh, something can suffer, and that can be the environment, um, and it can be um, the farmer, and it can be uh, the animal, or it can be all three. And if we don't pay enough the true cost, uh, or, or an amount that, that, that covers you know, the welfare of all those three things, then something has to suffer. Um, and in a lot of cases, we don't pay the true cost. Um, currently.
1: Yep. I, I mean, you, you go to the supermarket and you you're thinking, well, I'm going to buy this chicken that's nine ninety nine a kilo, or I'm going to buy this chicken that's fifteen dollars a kilo. How how do people weigh that up?
2: Yeah, and this and this is where the I really try to in the book uh, give give. Um Give some information so you can make better informed decisions when you're standing there at the checkout. The sad thing about all of us, myself included, is that we are really like in my community, I'm always working tirelessly for charity, and I'm a devoted parent who always pays my son lots of attention and never shouts at him <laughs> and um you know i i i you know well all the thing I, I'm such a good person in my head, but I can' tell you I fail. All the time, and we all fail. So, if you show people, cage eggs is an interesting one. It's not meat, but they're still animals. So, so caged hens, hens, your know, battery hens that lay eggs. They're in, you know, the chickens are in cages. Most Australians, something like 98, 99% of Australians look at that and go, "That's not good. That system ain't good." But sadly, 98, 98% of Australians, you know, it's not one or two percent who buy them. It's it's way more than that. And the reality is, when we're at the checkout. You know, in the, at the supermarket or heading to the checkout, we go, yeah, that system's awful. Oh, they're six cents cheaper per egg or whatever it is, and so we 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 fail our own standards. Um, so, uh, I, I, look, I guess there are a few things. I think we, um, uh, and this is only an issue for people who have food security. I don't want to yep. like for people who don't have enough to eat. This is such a ridiculous conversation, yep. you know. And and there are people within Australia who don't who who don't who struggle to get enough food on the table. This is only a conversation for people who have the privilege and are lucky enough to, be able to have food security, and that's around the world as well. But once you've got food security and you feel that, you know, you can get some joy from, from breaking bread at the table with people, um, uh, you know, then, then what can we do better? And, um, you know, some, maybe y- y- there are, you could spend a bit more on your meat, right, um, and, and, and aim for something that's a bit of a higher welfare standard. So you might think, oh, I don't think, uh, you know, uh, chickens in sheds is good enough. I want them to be able to free range. I want to buy an, the more expensive yep. chicken. That's the choice that you can make when you're, when you're at the supermarket, um, and and you might pay for that by not eating 110 kilos a year. You might only eat 100 kilos a year, because it's such a sacrifice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or you might. Most Australians. Well, the average, not most. The average Australian throws out forty percent of the food they eat. I don't know the exact. It's hard to That's separate out the meat. That's a topic for your next book. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe just throw out twenty percent of the food you buy, um, uh, uh, rather than forty percent of the food you buy, and sp- and spend a bit more on the meat that you do buy, so you can afford the the free range chicken. But the other the other option is, yeah, maybe eat a little bit less meat, eat meat less often, but. But when you you can buy a higher welfare animal, um, and, would, and would you
1: eat meat seven sorry? days a week? Would
2: no, I don't. Eat, I eat meat. I don't know four days a week. Yeah. But well, I don't, but I don't make a distinction. Like if I if I make a pastry using lard, you know, um, is that eating meat? It's yeah. the it's the rendered fat of a pig from my farm. Y- yeah, it is. I guess from a vegetarian vegan point of view, but. Um, you know, uh, it, I, I wouldn't see that as eating meat. But or if I fried a tiny bit of you know piece of pancetta that big to flavour my pasta, it's not really eating meat. But it. Yep. But I, I would only put meat in my in my food probably four nights a week, five nights a week. Not every night.
1: I guess for for a nation that kind of grew up on meat and three veg, this is this whole discussion has made us rethink. Where, where we stand and what goes on our tables.
2: Yeah, it? yeah. And look, we've been very lucky for, you know, it's partly our geography. We, we have um, a lot of land that's suitable for animals in Australia. And so our high meat diet, we've always eaten a lot of meat. We just haven't eaten, you know, quite as much as we do today. But we've always eaten a lot of meat. And that's partly because we've had access to relatively cheap meat. And the reason that is, and, and this is the interesting thing when you look at land use is there's a whole bunch of different land. There's arable land and there's grazing land, right? It's different land. So when, when someone says if we all stopped eating meat, we could grow, you know, we, we'd get all this farming land and we could grow all these different things. Farming doesn't work like that. Um, there, is, there is land that, that's arable, so you can, you, can, you can grow fruit and vegetables and nuts and stuff like, you know, maybe things like that there. And there's grazing land, which is grassland. And they're different patches of land. And so how you use them, uh, uh, you know, is is is, is you, you get different products from them. So not everything can grow peaches, not everything can grow tomatoes, uh, and not everything can grow sheep. So it's how you use land that that, that really matters.
1: I, I guess in, in your travels, talking to farmers and stuff, do they feel they're being victimised or do they feel... Um,
2: uh, yeah, well, so, yeah, farmers do feel victimised. Yeah, look, I think this is the... This is part of the problem, what I'm trying to do with the book is bring the conversation into the middle and take it away from the really you know, intensive farms who, who want to do things, often without social licence, which is why they have the doors locked, and, then, uh, and away from the people who are adamant uh, and militant that, that we should, should avoid meat, and take it to the middle, the 95%, uh, who are saying, well, we, we, we'd like to, to eat meat. And farmers only do things on your behalf. They don't want to be demonised for doing stuff that you know, because you because you don't want to pay the price, you as I don't mean you as individual, but you as a community don't want to pay the price. Farmers, farmers want to. Most farmers I know, and like they're like any group, they're like I mean, they're like doctors, lawyers, you know, barristers, possibly even journalists. There's the <laughs> occasional bad egg, right? Yeah. You know, but generally they're just normal people trying to do a decent job. And they're a, but they're a business; they're not a charity. So you need to pay them enough to do something. And then, if you want them to do a certain thing, and that's community standards, then um, then then uh, then there might be a cost involved. You know, but they really want to; they don't want to be demonised just because they're trying to grow you some food. You know, um, they're just they're just trying to do it and make a make a living. Um, you know, uh, running running their business but growing food for the ninety nine percent.
1: Yeah, I, I recently came across this. Um farmer in the Shoalhaven I, I was down there on a kind of a food trip and he has these wagyu cows mm. Do they are they wagyu cows oh, yeah, yeah yeah and yeah. and he's on this property outside of Jarangong and he actually has these solar panel driven speakers in these paddocks to play them classical music <laughs> and and he has these um like Um, brushes that the cows can walk up against. uh, Those brushes look amazing. If you
2: you (laughs) want to be entertained, you look up... I don't know what you look... You just... Yeah, like cattle scratching on these brushes. Yeah. And and it's the most amazing It's solar
1: powered and they go around the paddock and the cows brush up against them. But one of the most interesting things apparently he does is... Um, as he, he slaughters them there on the farm and he has like a video or a, a film, like a screen with the picture of the paddock they've just come out of in oh the yes. screen. So when oh. they come in, they still think they're in the paddock and they're all calm. Yeah, right. And then he slaughters them. And I kind oh. of thought that was a good thing, but maybe it wasn't. But then I read in the oh. book about the, the lady who, um, in the pens, um, in the slaughtering...
2: Yeah, uh, uh, whose name? What was her name? What was it? What was Temple Grandin, yes, yeah, Temple yeah. Grandin, yeah. So in the book, I actually talk about. Um, so Temple Grandin's a really interesting person, and we're sort of way off yeah. track here, but um, uh, but Temple Grandin's really interesting, and I talk a little bit about her in the book. She's, um, she's very autistic, she couldn't communicate as a child, and she, she ended up a, at a farm, and she watched these cattle being put into a squeeze chute um, where they, they had this thing press on their flanks, to, and a lot of the animals relaxed. And she was so heavily autistic, she. Um, and she felt really scared in open spaces and didn't like hugs and all that kind of stuff. And then, but she made her own little squeeze box, um, and and uh, and it works really well to relax her and calm her nerves. Anyway, she she vent- eventually she she um, she's now a professor in animal science or something. Anyway, she she designs abattoirs. Um, but she's a woman who, who essentially, you know, the, I think the BBC documentary is the woman who thinks like a cow. She's one of the few people who seem to be able to understand the animal's perception of the world. And it's interesting that someone who probably understands how the animal is perceiving the world better than you and I, um, uh, because she has uh, very heightened anxiety and simplistic um, emotional responses, um, and that's her own uh, way of putting it. Um, it's interesting that someone who probably understands how, how cattle think, um, better than you and I um, desto- designs the places where they go to die, and she cops a lot of flack for that. Um, uh, but it's, it's sort of an interesting, um, uh, you know, just an interesting yeah. idea that, that she, she's, she doesn't. Even though she can, she can imagine how the animals feel, she doesn't fi- doesn't um, anthropomorphize, doesn't put human emotions and uh, and, and and attachments yeah. on them.
1: But we we were saying before too that as kids we our schools went to visit abattoirs and. Mm. Chicken farms, and you just can't imagine that happening these days.
2: No, I don't think so. Does anyone know if that happens these days? <laughs> it does. They still take kids to abattoirs and chicken. Oh, they do. Yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, um, yeah, because I tried to get into lots of them and they wouldn't let me in, which I was really surprised. <laughs> well, no, I'm a meat eater. I was really surprised, you know, about about. Um, yeah, the lack of access to to um, to farms. Well, you know, not to all farms, but to certainly to the shedded farms. Yeah, yeah, but they do have a few things to hide. You know, generally, I I, just, I, I think so. So, and I think what they've, yeah, I think part of the problem is the more the more militant um, and angry people get, and the more people get their farms broken into, then we get more um, secrecy and more. Um, you know, uh, uh, more more people are just saying, look, don't trust us. Trust us. We know what we're doing, but you don't need to see. Um, you won't like. You know, or you you won't understand is what they say. You won't understand what we're doing over here. And I think that's a real. It's an insult to the you know to the intelligence of Australians that that the intensive animal industry wouldn't think that the the people who eat their meat um, wouldn't be able to understand that it doesn't look like a, a you know a Julia Lester book or whatever. You know, it um, it. You know, modern agriculture doesn't resemble a storybook um, that we've got in our heads. It actually does look a little more complicated and a little more high-tech um, uh, but it, it still should meet com- com- general community expectations, the middle yep. ground.
1: W- w- when you moved to the farm, can you remember the first animal that you slaughtered that you'd raised? Did you think any different
2: about yeah, the process Yeah, it was chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a chapter in the book. It, it, it was a former vegan who taught me how to kill. Um, because the woman, the women who taught me how to kill, were both former vegans, yep. and um, uh, and yeah, so it's an interesting, uh, uh, it's an interesting idea that um, y- you know you want to take the life of something that you've raised, and I found it very, very confronting. And I hate death to this day. I mean, yep. like I don't, you know, I really don't think most people need to be there to kill, but I think they should understand at least understand what what. What, that something dies in their name, um, but uh, I, I really don't like the process. But I, th- I think if all of this death is uh, merely about our attachment to it. You know, it's 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 that's what it all boils down to. It's it's relatively philosophical. You know, does a does a mouse dying in a wheat field in Western Australia do I care more about that than a, um, you know th- than my dairy cow, cow that I've been yep. milking for seven years? No, like I care about my dairy cow that I see. You know, that I press my head against her flank every day yeah. for seven years. Um, you know, that's just nat- natural, that we care more, more about stuff that we have an attachment to. Do, I, do you care more about your dog than the, the, than the chicken whose necks you're about to feed your dog? Yeah. You know, because people buy chicken necks to feed their dog. You know, that's a very normal human thing.
1: Do, you, do these ladies who, who taught you how to kill, do they kind of reassess their own, I suppose, ethical... Well,
2: what was interesting is how we both ended up at the same place, and that was that they had, like, eighty-four percent of vegans and vegetarians had had decided not to be vegetarian or vegan anymore. That's what kind of happens. Um, And you know, I I was vegetarian for a while, and um, you know, for a couple of years, and I I I wasn't very good at it, but. Obviously, in the end, but even at the time. Yeah. Um, uh, not, not from my own focus, it's when you go to someone's house and they go, oh, you're vegetarian, I've just cooked you chicken. Um, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. But um, no, they ended up at the same place, because it, essentially, and I think that's what the, 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 where I end up in the book, is that um, I'm probably more closely aligned with a vegan um, view of animal welfare than I am at a, an industrial farming end yep. because, because they ended up there because they wanted to know what they were putting on the plate and they couldn't bear the fact that something might have been fed antibiotics and you know, um, raised in a shed where it couldn't express its instincts and, um, and they wanted it to, 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 to know what it had eaten, that, that it had lived a good life and that it you know, died quickly and they didn't feel the system provided that. So they set up their own farms to rear their own animals to put on their own table okay. and then took the responsibility on their own shoulders to take the life of those animals, which is just kind of next level. But you know, people who define themselves by their diet often are next level.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, what, what's your thinking? Well, you know,
2: they're pretty committed. You know? <laughs> they are, you know. So, yeah.
1: What what's your thinking on? I suppose getting rid of the word vegan and people talking about plant based plant based diets. Uh, do you yeah. think there's some stigma attached to veganism, or uh, or meat eaters attaches uh, yeah,
2: to... Yeah yeah I do I do think there's stigma, but I th- also think um, yeah I think plant based isn't a bad bad way to put it because cause vegan has is has very very strict sort of you know good and bad plant based is you know like you, plant, you can have a risotto that's plant based that you've fried something in butter to put on the top like it's not it's still plant based um you know uh, I think it's not a bad f- form of language because it's 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 sort of suggesting that it's okay to to do this with your diet and with your you know as opposed to being strict and 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 to some extent arbitrary because you know, because when you say to, to be vegan, to, to you know, things still die for you to be vegan and, and you still eat animal products when you eat vegan foods, so it's, it's kind of an arbitrary thing we've only come up with in the last, you know, f- few decades, really, but yeah. you know, a couple of hundred years, maybe, but um, yeah, so so the. To make it less arbitrary would be, you know, and people can just make their own decisions on a, on a daily basis about what they want to put yeah, in their mouth yeah. without sort of trying to demonise or define things through a, a, something that's a little bit hard to define. Yep, you know. but
1: there's a, a chapter in the book on fake meat. Um, we discussed that briefly about, t- to me, that's kind of the ultimate disconnect from the origins of food? What's, what's your thinking about... Yeah, so fake meat? fake
2: meat takes... Uh, people heard that term. Uh, clean meat is a nice marketing term because meat's obviously do- so dirty. We've only been eating it since the dawn of time. Um, so we're not really evolutionarily evo- you know, evolved to... Um, designed ev- uh, and evolved to eat it. But um, look, uh, it takes two forms. One is, I guess, plant-based stuff that's trying to pretend to be meat. Um, and uh, meat cells, muscle cells grown in in a lab. Um, and I, look, I, I'm pretty hard on it. I've got to be honest. Like, I'll be, I'll be really frank about this. Like, you you can make your own decisions about what what you eat in terms of, no, you know, vegan, vegetarian omnivore, you know, paleo, whatever, I would hope that you would consider the animals that are affected by your diet and the farmers and the environment, how they're affected by your diet. But fake meat? Man, i got a really strong emotional connection to this because I grew up, you know, like I love scientists. My dad was a chemist, right? Believed in his, with his, not quite his dying breath, but his nearly dying breath that that science would save the world and save him, which it didn't in the end. Um, And... uh, uh, but I don't really need scientists in the kitchen. Now, and the reason I say this, growing up in 1970s Canberra, I had to eat margarine.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: now, I'm gonna, I, this is really important. This is, I'm trying to simplify this. When you look at the list of stuff that's in these... Uh, even the even the one that's cultured in a lab, the muscle cells it doesn't taste like much until you add stuff to it. You got to add a whole bunch of stuff to make that you know, the cultured muscle cells taste like anything. But if you take the plant stuff, it's at least you know, this long. All of all of human ingenuity, all of the money, all of the time and effort that we have spent coming up with a substitute for butter, and all the f- we've come up with is margarine. <laughs> it's it's 82% fat. It's simple. It is so simple compared to meat. Like the chance of you being able to replicate replicate meat through through scientific process. I'll go ahead, give it a crack. But like if we haven't now something to to be a genuine substitute for butter after 80 years and all that money, what's the chance? <laughs> what's the chance? And and just, just I want you to think about this for a sec, right? We could put all this time, effort, you know, oh yeah, to make this fake meat stuff. But you've got to think about what we already do. We kill 30,000 camels a year in Australia every year to protect the desert. We kill tens of thousands of pigs every year um, uh, to protect wildlife, you know, Kakadu and, and the rainforests in, in, um, in Queensland. We, uh, We live macerate, or gas, but usually live macerate, 16 million chickens a year, right? Because they're the wrong sex. So when you go to get laying hens, you get half of them are boys and they throw them into essentially a mincer, right? Live macerate, it's a quick uh, death, 16 million chickens a year. We humans created those lives. We humans go, bugger it, wrong gender, the chicken industry is so good at producing meat so cheaply there's no point having a laying breed hen because laying breeds and meat breeds are two entirely different um, you know sort of uh, variations on the original species there's no point fattening that rooster or bringing that rooster up for any length of time because we can't compete in price with your four dollar uh, four dollar or whatever it is five dollar um, uh, um, uh, chick frozen chicken so let's Kill 16 million of them through through live maceration, so this is the thing that we have humans have created—a problem we have created. We kill, I oh, forget the numbers, 40,000. Uh, no, it's, it's more than that. Um, 400,000. I can't remember. Uh, bobby calves, you know, um, dairy uh, calves that are boys every year. Anyway, thousands and thousands and thousands of them every year with a blunt force to the head, hammer blow to the head, um, if they're left on farm, or they might be sent to an abattoir at five days old. Wouldn't we be better as humans, as, huma- as hum- humanity, with all our ingenuity and all our knowledge and all our science, saying, well, why, rather than waste those 30,000 camels that we've already killed and then rearing another bunch of animals that we can kill as well for meat, or why macerate those 16 million chickens when, if we were clever enough, we could raise them and use them at least in some way, provide high quality protein and... Even if they were boiling hens, you know, like providing some quality of, of, of you know, to our dinner table. Um, why would we spend all that time and effort trying to outmeet meat when when we already have these other things that we could be putting our effort into? And the other side of that is, if you want to create beef, I've got on my farm. I've got this really cool thing. It it goes through the paddocks and it consumes. A renewable resource in the form of grass, <laughs> which is essentially cellulose, which is indigestible to you and me. I have lots of my farm that I can't grow stuff on except grass, so it's not somewhere I can plant anything else. Um, and I have this thing that walks around and turns that cellulose that is no value to me as a food source and turns it into milk within 24 hours. And it also, at the end of its life or, or its, its progeny turns it into beef. Like, and then we, so you're in a lab somewhere trying to create this thing using fossil fuels and God knows uh, what sort of chemicals. And, and and yet we already have something that makes meat, and it's quite efficient at it. Um, and, you know, I, I really, I don't understand the concept. But I also don't understand processed food. What's it done for us? Has it made us thinner, healthier? You know, richer? No. no? None of those. Well, it's, yeah, it's made some of us richer, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the thing. It's made some of us richer. Not, not you and me, probably.
1: I suppose that, that's how you, <laughs> how you open the book, though, where the, the farmer said it smells like money. That's the...
2: Yeah. The, the, I wanted to call the book Smells Like Money, but it wasn't a good title, to, they said. <laughs> no, I walk around these farms. You know these farms? You, you, you uh, you've probably been to them, but yeah, where they say, Look, bring clothes that you can burn when you leave because you'll have to burn the clothes, they'll stink so much you'll never wash the smell out. Um, or farms where you, know, you, you, you couldn't breathe in too deeply when you first arrived because you gag from the ammonia and stuff. And, and pretty much all the farmers would go, I'd go, Oof, <coughs> and they'd go, Yeah, it smells like money. <laughs> yeah
1: i suppose there was a, a bit in the book too about the um at the piggery where the fellow had to shower sixteen times a day to mm. to go through different yeah
2: parts. that was the most that's actually that's the that's the most um i think that's the most the, the most difficult story in the book that was actually yeah. part of the genesis of the book but that was one of the ones i this is a a story that um it might put you off pork but um if so be it um so so they have these things called like, I thought I'd seen a lot. Like I've got pigs. I'd researched pigs. I'd been to some piggeries. Um, uh, I'd, I'd seen all the you know awful footage that, that people take when they break into pig farms, showing the sort of the, the worst case scenario. And um, I kind of had an idea of how how pig farms were run. Then I met this guy, and and he he was uh, running a feedlot, but he, not a piggery at the time. And he said to me, "Mate, oh I've got you got pigs, haven't you?" I said, "Yeah, yeah." And he said, "Oh, I oh, I love pigs. I love pigs. I love pigs. They're great, aren't they?" And I'm like. Yeah, yeah, good. And I'm thinking, I've just been walking around his feedlot sort of noticing that he hadn't put up, up a lot of shade for his cows. Where he had put shade, they were all under it. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, he, that's interesting. He's interested in pigs. and I was thinking about how social they are and how they play together. And you know, They're a pretty interesting animal um, in, in, in lots of respects. But then he proceeded to tell me a story about a piggery he set up. And he set up this piggery and um, uh, uh, he set it up. They wanted to to have a... what. Um, a pigry free of disease, there are certain diseases pre- transmitted from pig to pig. When you put a lot of animals together, like when you put humans in a city, you know, when we first put humans together in cities and created massive uh, outbreaks of disease, same thing that happens when you put other animals together, um, if you can't keep hygiene under control or whatever. So they have, had, had, they have disease that can, can, can be a problem. And so he wanted to stock these pigs, uh, this pigry with minimal disease pigs, they call them, or specific pathogen free pigs. And the way they do that, he proceeded to tell me, oh, aren't pig's great, uh, is that you take all the mother pigs um, uh, and you, 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 you've got your piggery. It's either a new piggery, in his, in his case it was brand new, but it could be a piggery where you've just emptied it out and cleaned it to make sure there's no disease left in it. And what you do is you bring all the mother pigs up outside the piggery on the day they're about to give birth and then you kill them all and you cut them open and you take all the piglets put them into a sterile wheelbarrow, that's what he told me they put them in, um, uh, but the Queensland Department of Primary Industries website used to describe it as a wa- washing basket, but anyway, um, either either I guess, um, uh, put them into a wheelbarrow, wheeled, I think it was 60 mother pigs, so be, you, know, whatever that is, 60 times 13, whatever, um, piglets into the, um, into the piggery to set up his um, disease-free piggery. Um, and and I find that story. I didn't believe it until I read about it on the yep. Queensland uh, Department of Prime Industries website. They call it hysterectomy now. It's 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 a it's, a, it's obtuse because you know it's, it sounds like just a medical procedure. But a mother pig without a uterus is um, is not a live pig. I can tell you that. Um, for the far, for those farmers, they don't have any uh, any use for a mother pig without a uterus, so they kill them. Um, and I think that appalls me because. Because we created a problem with the disease, and we came up with such a base system for getting rid of the disease, like, 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 that is, those piglets get no colostrum. Twenty-five percent of you know, the colostrum, the first milk that all mammals produce, it's, it provides all these antibodies. Twenty-five percent of a of a of a mother pig's milk, uh, when she f- in the first twenty-four hours is protein, and so the vast majority is antibodies. It's the thing that provides immunity. A normal vaginal delivery provides immunity. Dirt, you know, normal environment that a pig would be born in provides immunity. So once you've set this piggery up, the pigs essentially are immunocompromised. So the piggery that this was, set, that, that this was based on was a, pig, a piggery in Japan where they... Uh, which was where the parent company was, and they wanted to create the same system. And that piggy, you have 16 showers a day, because when you go into each section, you, can't, you don't want to take disease, so they make you shower and change your clothes, go into a section, and then when you leave that section, another shower. Then when you go into another section, so eight sections, 16, if you go, he went into all the sections in one day, 16 showers in a day. A pure, pure, like it's just dumb, it's like it's, it's to me, it's morally bankrupt, and it's, but it's dumb farming, and it's done, and it's, you know, it's done in Australia and it's done in our name.
1: But I guess for all the horror stories in the book, and, you know, you could read it and you could never eat meat again, but I think you come away at the end of it with a sense of hope that there are people doing the right thing and they're the people we kind of have to support.
2: Yeah, I, and I think the big thing that, that I try to think about, um, which is good to think about, I guess, when you think about meat is um, uh, the most important animal, okay, the most important animal is human, right? Because there are good farmers, there are people trying to re- do really good things. It doesn't matter what they grow, whether they grow plants, you know, whether they're they're growing fruit or vegetables, grain, um, or, or or livestock. There are good farmers trying to do good things there, you know, out there. Um, I think the industry has uh, does objectionable and sometimes abhorrent things. Uh, the, the intensive animal industry. But part of the reason is because there's been no, no normal people in there going, what the? What? Eh? You do what? Like a normal person would look at a farrowing crate, these things that mother pigs give birth in, and they would just see it as a jail. It just looks like a pig jail, right? The average person would just go, man, that system looks it stinks. So it does, there must be something better you can do than that. But when they're in the industry, they just do, 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 and it's behind closed doors because they, they want secrecy, they want privacy, don't worry, trust us, we're doing the right thing. But there are so many great farmers out there doing such good things, and, and, um, the, but the only way they can make a living is if you support them.
1: Yeah, so that's what, what can we do, what can the individual do?
2: What can the individual do every time you have, so, so the most important thing, food is your friend, don't be frightened, I, I, I know I... Be frightened of fake meat, but don't be... Yeah, 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 <laughs> fr- be frightened of fake meat. <laughs> you know if you don't want to eat meat what's wrong with an eggplant i mean chickpeas you know but processed food jesus any kind of processed food is bad processed meat in particular but um food your friend food food is supposed to be a joy like we're supposed to it's supposed to be a, a sh- something that you, you know you break bread with your family it, it binds communities it, you know you you fall in love over the dinner table I did um a few times and um <laughs> and um uh you know, but that's what is supposed. That's what, it, and it's to nourish us and and fortify us and all that kind of stuff. So, so that's the most important thing. Don't be frightened and don't beat yourself up for all the bad things that are done that you can't control. But when you have a chance to change the momentum, when you have a chance to make a better decision. So, if you're standing there, in, you know, in the supermarket and you see some pork that says, you know, because supermarkets now have free range pork quite often, and it says free range pork, or um, uh, or, you know. Nothing, um, nothing specific. Well, you know, and if you've got, if you've got the money and the chance, the opportunity to buy the free range, buy the free range, you know. But, but you know, don't beat yourself up when you, you don't have the money or that, you know, you're in the wrong place. There's lots of times when you sh- where you're shopping does, just doesn't have the options. And and there's no point beating yourself up about the, the decisions you can't that uh, you, you, know, you can't really make, that you don't have no capacity to make because you might not have the money or the geography or, the, or whatever. But when you have the opportunity to make a better ch- decision, when you see something that suits your moral standpoint better, grass-fed beef versus grain-fed, free-range versus shedded, whatever it is, and you take that opportunity, then you support someone who's, who's um, trying to do a better thing for, for the world.
1: Thank you, Matthew. Pleasure. We've got some time now to get some questions from the audience. I'm
0: sure there'll be lots. Thank you very much, Matthew and Karen, for that thought-provoking conversation tonight. I'm glad we ended on a more positive note.
2: Yeah. <laughs> oh no, sorry, I shouldn't have gone there. And the,
0: and the book does end no. on a positive
1: note.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I hopefully I hope you end the book feeling empowered to make better decisions. I mean, And there's only, we touched on a couple of grim things, but there's actually lots of lice, you know, empowering things in there.
0: Yes, and I think the story of how you found love over the dinner table multiple times is a story for another day. (laughs) We do have some time for questions from the audience, and I'm sure that there's many people who have a question to ask. So please raise your hand tonight, and a microphone will be brought to you. We do ask that you use the microphone for people using the hearing loop, and for our audio recording tonight. Thanks so so
1: much, Matthew, for a (laughs) wonderful talk. My question is, and and you may not be prepared to address this, but I was very impressed with your series that you did on TV about the fish in Tasmania. And I was wondering how far that has come now um, since we've advanced in, in a number of years since then because it seemed to me that the amount of imported fish is growing, not diminishing. And uh, I'm not sure whether that's right or
2: not. Yeah, yeah. when you said advanced, I thought that was an interesting <laughs> expression. Um, yeah, no, the, we don't produce enough fish and, seafood in Australia to, 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 for our um, demand, so that we're always going to have imports, and it has gone up. Um, but what's been really interesting, there was no legislative change. It was very hard. We, you know, we had Barnaby, I think, agriculture minister, didn't know what a species was. Um, uh, It was a little hard to get the nuance uh, happening there. Um, uh, um, But but what's been really amazing is cultural change. So the Sydney Fish Market now runs sustainability courses. Um, Lots of wholesalers said to me that the the chefs are asking better questions and they're they're really useful because most people, when they eat seafood, eat out. And the consumers are asking better questions. And that's all um, uh, being fed back to me by the industry. And I get hugs from fishermen now around Australia. It's really kind of creepy. but, um, <laughs> but so, so there has been a change. There has, there has been a change in buying habits. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, when it comes to provenance, as you mentioned to start off with, where are we as consumers in relation to the provenance, whether it's Brussels sprouts or whether it's chicken on the shelf? And the other thing, too, is you mentioned nourishment. And nourishment doesn't necessarily equate with food satisfaction and also are we uh, looking at corporate cartels successfully selling the name of farming right do you want to feed those <laughs> to me one <laughs> at a time because my brain can't cope with it. okay so so i'll go to your nutrition one first so the modern chicken has a third less protein than the old-fashioned chicken um, uh, most of the time, nutrient density is very t- closely related to, um, uh, to flavour. Um, we are all gifted with this ability to tell nutrient density, and that is uh, um, a more complex, more interesting, more delicious flavour. Who knew that evolution would provide that little trick? Um, so something that has more inherent uh, nutrient density ch- tends to taste better. Uh, that's that's yeah, certainly with vegetables and um, most meats. Omega-3s, uh, if you grass-feed or, or give uh, pigs and chickens more, less grain, because in sheds they're always fed grain, if you give them more gra- uh, greens, so leafy greens like we would eat, because they're um, yeah, both omnivores, um, they put down more omega-3s and omega-3s are better tasting. Same with grass-fed um, beef. The, the omega-3s in grass-fed beef uh, help to give it a better flavour as well.
0: It's about corporate cartels, are we building...
2: Corporate, corporate cartels, projects? buying farms. Uh, yeah, that's, it's an issue. It's very hard in Australia. To, I, I don't really understand the, the dynamics in Australia. Worldwide, 70% of the, world still, uh, the food is still grown by smallholders, um, which is interesting because we kind of t- tend to think of it as monolith, monolithic companies and uh, monocultures. Um, so uh, most of that's grown by women, actually, the, the, uh, the smallholders growing most of the world's food. So it's quite an interesting thing. And the third question? I don't remember. No. Provenance. provenance. Yeah, well, I'd rather the debate was... You know, I shouldn't say this because I'm trying to flog a book on meat, but um, I'd rather the debate was about, uh, you know, real food, unprocessed, provenance and nu- nutrient density and, you know, um, you know eating seasonally close to the source, um, uh, because they're, they're, they, they can relate to everything that we eat that, that we should be um, sharing at the table. The gentleman up the back. Someone's got it. Could you comment, please, on the uh, variation between types of plants? We haven't talked about the that. The variation much. between types of types of plants. Which ones to eat? Which ones you prefer. plants? Yes. <laughs> wow. We got. That's a big topic. How long we got? Oh, look. Uh, okay. So plants, really briefly, in in in, in agricultural terms, environmental terms. Um, I'll put it. Let's let's go back to um, a little bit of biology. Uh, um, you know, uh, you've got annuals and perennials. Uh, um, so horticulture, uh, you've got annuals and perennials. Things that you plant and harvest every year. you um, uh, which are annuals and perennials, which are things you plant and then and, and uh, you don't kill them every every year. So you don't have to keep planting them every year. So in terms of soil structure, we lose two to three tonnes of topsoil per person per year around the world. The worst thing you can do is cut down a forest that already exists. And if you cut down a forest, uh, uh, the second worst thing you can do is grow annual crops, um, which are carrots, lettuce, you know, most, fruit, uh, vegetables, most vegetables that we eat. Perennials are things that live on year to year. So your, most, your fruit trees, uh, uh, nut trees, um, things like that. Um, artichokes are perennial, but a lot of vegetables aren't. Um, so in, that's a very broad one on plants.
0: Just the lady here. Thank you for the talk. It's been uh, really fascinating. One of the things I'm interested in was, Karen, you mentioned. It's Karen, isn't it? is that right? You mentioned the beef being slaughtered on the property. Mm-hmm. I buy my meat at the farmers' market, and speaking to the producer of lamb, asking. Uh, him, how the lamb slaughtered. And he said it's not, it's illegal for to to slaughter and then sell meat off, you know, or to slaughter on the property. He has to take it. Is that a thing? Has yeah, to take he, it to a. But he.
2: Yeah. So so there animals and have to go it. through a licensed abattoir. To be a licensed abattoir is quite onerous. So you can have an abattoir on your property, but you've got to meet a lot of criteria. The number of abattoirs around Australia has shrunk rapidly. I think we had 40 or something in Tasmania a couple of decades ago. We now up, you know, sort of three or four yep. um, because the, the regulations are quite onerous. So, so um, anybody who's ever ha- you know, had a farm and killed animals on site will tell you that the, 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 the an, you know, an animal that hasn't had to be transported that has been doing what it would normally do and then suddenly is no longer with us. Is a much better tasting animal, and sadly, all the great work that goes into the breed and the feed and the uh, you know and the and the animal welfare system before the animal dies, and all the great work that can happen in the in the, the butchery and the processing and care of the meat, you know, dry aging, whatever after the animal dies, can all be um, undone. Uh, undone by that little little window in the middle, the day and minutes around the, the animal's death. We aren't allowed to kill on our farm except for our own consumption. Um, and because we do that, we can see very clearly the, the difference in quality. We think it's uh, you know it, it, the, the rules are there because they, they not 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 for animal welfare reasons, but because the, it's too hard to to regulate small abattoirs and get around them all. Um, in, in our view, there is a, a mobile butcher just set up, Provenir. Um, just started in southern Queensland, I can't remember where they started uh, in the end, uh, which have set up where they can go to farms, but it's still quite a big operation, they need yeah. to do a number of animals so it's too. not good for you know, three pigs or seven sheep, you have to kill a whole bunch of animals at that farm on that one day but that would be the ideal because it's. and if that was set up by a, well, one of the people who set it up was a vet, to reduce stress yeah what is Yeah, everything you can. Yeah.
0: That he can do
2: to reduce the stress. Yeah. Yeah. There's a question down the front. Um, yes. Hi. Um, now you mentioned uh, the millions of uh, chick- uh, baby chickens that get killed. And
0: um, now I'm heavily into uh, waste uh, reduction and management.
2: W- would they get sent on f- to the fertilizer uh, uh, and something good happen? I would presume to, to they. Those. I presume they are. They might, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, I don't think they get turned into salmon food, but they could be. They use um, uh, chicken uh, bone and feather meal in, in salmon food, um, mm. but uh, I, I would presume that if you're creating that, those those hatcheries would, would it would end up as blood and bone or something like that. Yeah. Mm.
0: Are there any further questions? There's one right up the back, Sue, in the back row. One
1: here, okay, then one up the back. Oh. Hi, um, look, I'm, I don't know want to um, get into anybody's industry, but is there any difference between butchers and supermarkets when it comes to buying meat and things like that? I know that you know you buy bacon from the butcher and it just tastes so much better. Than what they what you get in the supermarket, you know. Like, is yeah. there anything that yeah. we should know about that?
2: Yeah. Look, seventy percent of uh, uh, the bacon and ham you'll get in Australia is imported. So whenever it hasn't got a bone, um, check the label. I was looking at a, there's one in the book I quote where they uh, it's twenty percent uh, local ingredients, which would be in a ham, uh, processed ham, which would be the water. Um. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, and supermarkets are. Um, yeah, I mean, from my perspective, uh, even butchers sadly don't do a lot of it these days. But some butchers still get whole carcasses, so they value the whole animal the same, and so they're they're keen for you to understand how to use all the bits because every animal comes with all the bits, and they're trying to minimise waste. Um, and they can help you with that. And a good butcher, I mean, they're they're I mean, they're in the meat business. Um, I would hope that a good butcher actually knows where all the stuff comes from, so they can explain that you know they've got those free-range chickens or they've got that pork which is not free-range but they are, you know, from this system, there's a system that that is is better than just being in a concrete shed, all that kind of stuff. They should know. That's their their job.
0: Just going back to the male chick maceration, so there are some companies in Northern Europe that do rear those male chicks but unfortunately consumers don't like the taste of them, Too, too gamey, tastes too much like chicken. So the alternative is to go into sex selection for eggs. But unfortunately, that would require probably being labelled a GMO product, which, again, consumers don't want. So I'm wondering how you think that we can encourage Australian consumers to actually eat those male, lear hen chickens in the future.
2: Yeah, chicken. (laughs) Like.
1: I don't think... That's what I got from the book. I thought, you're not a fan of chicken.
2: Well, no, yeah, so, so the stated aim of the industry is to produce bland tender meat, of the chicken meat industry, is to produce bland tender meat. So essentially, they want something that has a certain amount of chew, that doesn't really have any flavour, um, and, and certainly is never tough. And they've pretty much achieved that. I mean, they're successful. Um, but I kind, of, I kind of go 650 million chickens a year to produce animal tofu. I could just don't... That, that's, how many, that's how many chickens we produce every year. I don't really get that. But it's an interesting point about the flavour because I was talking to someone the other day who had it was a, a meat bird, but it was an old breed, late like meat bird, and served it with their family, and the kids went, "Holy moly, what's that? Oh, I'm not used to that." Um, we're kind of not used to food with flavour. Like it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? You, you take these birds that have got inherent flavour, and people go, "Oh Christ, what's that?" Um, yeah, a bit of a sad indictment on us. I hadn't heard that that about that before. That's an interesting one. So um, you know, uh, well yeah i don 't know how do you how do you convince people that 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 for, you know the whole point of a good flavored meat and this is what we find on our farm and I think probably anyone who 's had good meat you, 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 it has so much flavor you eat less of it you know you kind of go oh wow there 's the flavor like there 's the flavor and so I'm actually I, my starting point is eating less of it and my my chickens go a lot further um, you know like i 'm getting a lot more meals, particularly out of the broth because of that extra flavor so i I guess maybe that 's it it 's like yeah, you should, maybe not half your plate is chicken, maybe, you know, an eighth of your plate is chicken or something.
0: Well, thank you. I think that draws the conversation to a close tonight. I hope you have enjoyed our discussion and please, again, thank Matthew and Karen. conversation doesn't have to stop right here, please do join us upstairs in the foyer. Matthew's kindly agreed to sign books tonight and they're available in the bookshop for 10% off. Bookplate is also opening a cash bar, so should you feel like a drink and a conversation, please do continue upstairs in the foyer. Thank you, we'll see you again next time.